It's been more than 20 years since I was in high school, but one thing I remember about my history classes or social studies, as the subject was called when I was a teenager, is that the textbooks always stopped about a decade shy of the contemporary period. There was nothing about Bill Clinton or even George Bush Sr., and the Soviet Union's collapse was still so recent that we only talked about those subjects outside of textbooks, relying on other materials. Looking back, I figure this had to do with the fact that American public schools probably don't have the funding to buy new textbooks all the time. But I also got the sense that there was a kind of consensus that textbooks and the authoritative voice they bring to learning history wasn't totally appropriate for events that had basically just happened. After all, it'd be kind of weird if teenagers were given a textbook that tried to offer a definitive view of, say, an election that had happened only last year. Heck, some students' parents would probably object, the politics still being fresh and unsettled. That's maybe just my own memory of grade school, however. And it certainly doesn't fit Russia, where the same guy has been in power for nearly a quarter century. A history textbook would have to ignore the last 23 years to avoid commenting on the Putin era. Of course, Russia's new unified history textbook is anything but shy when it comes to Vladimir Putin's time in office. In fact, a new textbook for 11th graders announced earlier this summer has almost 30 pages devoted directly to explaining and especially to justifying Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. So let's talk about this textbook, The History of Russia, 1945 to the Start of the 21st Century. And let's try to figure out how the nation's high schoolers ended up with more than 400 pages of unbridled state propaganda. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy folks, I'm Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. Apologies if my voice is at all scratchy this week. I've consumed a whole case of Red Bull sugar-free energy drinks, not all in one sitting, but I think maybe in the last two weeks. And I'm convinced that I'm nearing some kind of chemically induced metamorphosis. And I can only hope that my family and my colleagues still love me, whatever new form I take. Anyway, on this week's show, I spoke to three experts about a controversial new textbook crafted and promoted by the Putin regime that tells Russia's modern history since the end of World War II. Just to give you a sense of the layout, the whole textbook is 448 pages, including several sections with little assignments and glossaries and whatnot. There are 264 pages devoted to the post-war Soviet period, 48 pages about Russia in the 1990s, and 94 pages about the Putin era. Putin's name appears on about 40 different pages, sometimes more than once, while Stalin and Stalinism show up on nearly 60 pages. The section of the textbook that's most drenched in propaganda is the last one, about Russia today and the special military operation, where students learn that the U.S. and the EU spent enormous sums of money to create textbooks in the 1990s, to reset Russians' brains, and convince them that Russia has always had an aggressive and colonial nature. The book's authors express outrage that Western historians and politicians cite the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact, which carved up Eastern Europe, as a direct cause of World War II. The textbook says this distorts history. Students are also encouraged to be enraged about the destruction of Soviet monuments across Eastern Europe and the ungratefulness of the states in this region, which the USSR liberated from the Nazis. There's a lot of ink spilled about neo-Nazism in Ukraine, obviously, and how the Biden administration pushed Kiev supposedly to escalate attacks against the Donbass, and how 
The United States built a network of secret biolaboratories in Ukraine and how Zelensky wanted nuclear weapons, etc., and so forth. This section contains chilling passages like this one. If Ukraine, having joined NATO, provoked a military conflict in Crimea or the Donbass, then based on the NATO charter, Russia would be simultaneously at war with all members of the North Atlantic bloc, from the USA and England to Germany and France. It might have meant the end of civilization and could not be allowed. Near the end of the book, there are three whole pages devoted entirely to celebrating soldiers and volunteers who have served in Ukraine, most of whom have died in combat and received state awards. The special military operation chapter concludes with this paragraph. But one thing is clear that Russia has always had, has, and will have the valor, dignity, honor, and loyalty to oath of our soldiers and volunteer fighters, doctors, teachers, builders, and aid workers. They are the true, not invented heroes of our time. They are around us and among us. They are an example of honor, courage, and faith in the righteousness of our cause. Their names and their daily feats join the thousand-year annals of Russian history with the deeds of millions of their heroic forebears. It has always been so in the history of our motherland, and so it will be, always. Pretty heavy stuff to throw at a bunch of 17-year-olds. To understand how something like this came about, you've got to grasp who the textbook's authors are, because the names on this book jacket tell you a lot before you've even opened it. To learn more, I spoke to Artyom Yefimov, a professional historian who trained at the Higher School of Economics and who now serves as the editor-in-chief of Medusa's own Signal newsletter. Let's begin with the easy one. Alexander Chubaryan is the head of the Institute of Global History in the Russian Academy of Science. He is an elderly historian. To be completely honest, he is sort of academic bureaucrat, very high placed, very well connected. I'm not sure if he did any proper historical research in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I've never heard about it, but he was involved with the mega project of creating the unified history textbook from the get-go, so about 10 years ago. And probably he is there mostly for his academic gravitas, if you will. Anatoly Tarkunov is the rector of MGIMO, so the Moscow State Institute for Foreign Relations, which is a weird university. Most people who don't know the university, but if they've been on Russian social media, they maybe know the like meme or the joke. If somebody like makes a mistake in English, then they, you say, oh, MGO finished. The idea being yeah. that like they're, yeah. they're known for training foreign experts, but not that well. Is that the idea? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yes. <laughs> uh, this is the university that is run by the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So this is the place where all the diplomats that work in the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, almost all of them come from the MGIMO. It is considered very prestigious, but again, to be honest, academically speaking, there is not much of a scientific output or something coming out of MGIMO. So it's um, mostly, it's a sort of an academic sinecure and the place for all the rich children to go to. It's sort of prestigious to send your kid to the Mgimo. 
But other than that, it's not an all-around great university. Let's put it like this. And the most interesting of the three is uh, Vladimir Medinsky. And this is where the actual scandal comes to light. Medinsky, currently he holds the position of assistant to Putin. He was previously the Minister of Culture in Russia. And before that, he was the deputy of the state Duma. Well, to put it simply, he is an amateur historian who had some government positions and who used his government positions to promote his wildly outrageous theories about Russia, about Russian history, and particularly about Russia's relations to the West. They're wild because they're... Or they're just extremely pro-state or pro-regime, or does he is he like a conspiracy theorist, or like what makes it so wild exactly? Well, it's a little bit of everything. Let's put it like this: I think about twenty years ago, he wrote a doctoral thesis. He holds the um, degree of the in Russian, it's called the Doctor of Science. So it's something like PhD, but higher in Russian terms. He wrote his thesis on the Western perceptions of Russia in the 16th and the 17th century. But you still and call him an amateur historian, even though he's got this uh, doctor? Yes, yes. Okay. Because he, his thesis was debunked as a work of conspiracy theory yeah. and as a work of pseudoscience, basically. Mm. To give you just one example, he did not, when he analyzed works of the foreigners who traveled to Russia and wrote about. He did not use the original texts that they wrote. He used the Russian translations, modern Russian trans translations, which is, I guess, fine if you, if you are writing uh, a work of popular history or something like this. Mm -hmm. But for a doctoral thesis, come on. Right. This, this has to be your first clue that something's wrong with that. There was a huge scandal about his thesis, no worthy historian that I know of ever thought of Medinsky as anything but amateur, but still he holds his degree. They tried to strip him of, of this degree on the basis of the poor quality of his work. But again, this is the guy who has, has held several government positions, who is very well connected. So he still holds his degree. Right. The important thing about Medinsky, I guess, going into the discussion of the textbook is that originally, before he became a politician, he was in advertising and PR business. And I guess that his take on the textbook, on everything that he writes about Russian history as an amateur historian, comes from there, comes from his... Uh, PR sensibilities, if you mm. will. The basic idea is to write a version of history that makes Russia look good, basically. Any Russia, the Russia of the 16th century, the Soviet Russia, the modern Russia, anything. In fairness to Medinsky, this rewriting of history started long before him. And in order to go on about who these authors are and why they were chosen, you have to contextualize this within the framework of the Russian Federation, because the textbooks that already exist 
have some questionable authors or let's say prominent authors with some interesting ideas. That's James Pierce, a historian at the College of West Anglia and the author of The Use of History in Putin's Russia. He's currently writing a book about the history of the Golden Ring cities, and he told me that Medinsky's new history textbook, while questionable in many ways, nevertheless follows a trend that's been around for some time. So, for instance, the most popular textbook that has been used since the mid-90s was written by Danilov, who is a neo-Stalinist, former head of the history faculty at Moscow State University. His book, to give you an idea, The Red Terror has a couple of pages on it. The Stalinist terror is spoken of in very sort of neutral terms to kind of lessen the impact on the national psyche and present it as something where we all suffered it together, including the perpetrators. And why is that interesting? Well, it filters into many of the new museums and into many of the new documentaries and other mainstream histories in Russia. And Medinsky is sort of part of that school of thought, if you like. So yeah, we can categorize it that way. Uh, I wouldn't say he's a neo-Stalinist, but what I would say is that he's very much a fan of writing history for the masses, not writing history as it perhaps ought to be written. If we go back a little bit, just a little bit to 2007, there was another famous textbook that was criticized widely for glossing over the terror, written by a guy called Filipov. And even the 2015 series, which has kind of become the new school curriculum, you know, these authors, again, they're prominent Moscow State and Moscow State Pedagogical University historians with a particular view of the past. So they were chosen on purpose. Just again, for listeners, every school textbook, doesn't matter who the author is or who the publisher is, they have the first few pages just kind of an overview of the era. And when it gets to the invasion of Ukraine, it says, we entered an era of returning the historical homelands to the Russian Federation. No doubt Western challenges to this will only make our country stronger and our multinational people more united. So... It's quite obvious what they're going for there. And again, Medinsky has been saying these sorts of things for years. Putin has been saying things like multinational federation for a very long time. This was borrowed again from the Soviet era. Kind of like a progressive spin on imperialism or something like this. It is. And it's interesting you say progressive because there's a couple of things I could sort of say here. Now, there are some things that are progressive that they talk about in this book in very liberal terms. So they talk about modern art in this new textbook with quite a liberal flavor. They talk about free speech, freedom of assembly, free elections in kind of a positive way until we get to the year 2000. And then it's, it changes a little bit. Now, what's interesting with other textbooks, for instance, the 2015 series, it described the first Duma as full of liberal publicists. It used the word autocracy more than pretty much any other word in there, whereas this textbook uses the phrase so-called. So they say so-called demographic whole in modern Russia, so-called martial plans. So they're using the language of liberalism to attack the West in this book. And again, if you are watching RT these days, they're very good at doing the same thing. I guess at one point about 10 years ago, Putin picked up one of those textbooks and he did not like what he read there. His fixation on Second World War is well attested. He read something about the Battle of Stalingrad that he did not like. And at one of his public appearances, he said something to the effect of, this is an outrage. The Battle of Stalingrad is described all wrong in our school textbooks. 
we have to do something, basically, we have to do something about it. I'm not sure that it comes from his deep knowledge and understanding of the sociology of education and nation building and all this complicated stuff. I think it's mostly intuition, but still he, I guess he does realize that the school teacher of history, of literature, of, well, civics and the textbooks on civics, on history and uh, on literature are the most important things to build a nation, basically. To create the common memory and to translate the feeling, the idea, the emotion of the common past experience that brings the nation together. I think he intuitively understands this. And from this intuition came the idea of creating this single book that would create this emotion, this idea in the same way for everyone. And then they spent 10 years trying to make this idea a reality. There were all sorts of problems with creating the curriculum, writing some individual chapters, some parts of the work, they were actually mostly public. The expert group that worked on the curriculum, it consisted mostly of very respected historians, researchers, and the curriculum was mostly okay. It was balanced. It did not shy away from hard things, hard questions like Stalinism or Ivan the Terrible or, or that Peter the Great was, was actually a dick, to, to, to be honest. They did not shy away from, from these things, but at the end of it, nothing happened. Probably the most disruptive thing for the work was that they started it in uh, 2014. In January 2014, they came up with the curriculum and the idea was they start writing the textbook from there. But then the 2014 happened, Crimea and, and all of that. Right. And a lot of historical events started to look differently. Putin again publicly proclaimed that all of this has to be in the book. So that they had to go back to the drawing board. And then this happened again and again and again for 10 years. And now I guess this is just my speculation. I'm not sure. I guess that someone somewhere, probably Putin, him, Putin himself, just banged his fist on the table and said, that's it. No more discussions. I appoint Medinsky to write this book. Everyone else just shut up. Mm -hmm. I think it happened something like this. And so uh, all the academic and scientific uh, discussions, all the nuances, all the, well, what about the repression and what about the Prague Spring and what about the state antisemitism in Russia and what about the dissidents and what about this and that? None of it. I will not have any of it anymore. I've heard it for 10 years. I'm fed up. Now I'm on my special military, whatever. I have no time for this. I have no tolerance for this. I won this 10 years ago. So make it happen. I guess it happened something like this. 
To learn more about the genesis of Russia's unified history textbook, I spoke to Polly Jones, a professor of Russian at the University of Oxford who researches the literature and cultural politics of the post-Stalin period, and is currently completing a book called Gulag Fiction. She sighed when I told her I'd have to mention this next thing in her introduction as well. Dr. Jones acted as a consultant to the 2017 black comedy, The Death of Stalin. Dr. Jones, if you're listening, apologies for dragging this out again. When we spoke, I didn't even tell you that I can't say the words, Dr. Jones, without feeling like I'm talking to Harrison Ford. Anyway, here's what she had to say about Russia's initiative to achieve unity in the history classroom. So the idea of a unified history textbook's been kicking around for some time, explicitly, probably for about 10 years. So Putin first mentioned the idea explicitly, I think, in 2013. But the the sort of concept of having a single book or a sort of very unified approach clearly goes back earlier in Putin's rule as well. One of the interesting things is why, when that idea of having a kind of unified textbook and a unified approach was really explicitly brought out 10 years ago, why it didn't then result in a textbook is an interesting question, I think. I think for various reasons, it was difficult to produce at that point in time or difficult to agree on a narrative. Clearly now conditions are such that a unified narrative is, I think, easier to produce and also more seen as more essential. So it has just sort of finally materialized. Of course, there was in the Soviet period, a unified history textbook, the short course in the Stalin period. And that is probably the closest analogy to the book that's come out this year, this summer. And obviously during the Soviet period, the unifying concept had a lot to do with Marxist determinism and so on, and the eventual victory of communism, whether it's in one state or global, there's like obviously some shift on that. But what's the, is there a unifying principle with this new textbook? I've seen it described as statist. How would you explain this to somebody who's, who doesn't throw around the term statism on an everyday basis? One concept that I think does unite this new textbook is the justification for how Putin rules. So essentially this kind of vertical of power or the the idea of him as sole ruler, as somebody who brings stability, who is the only person who can guarantee stability. And there's a lot in the textbook that traces that narrative back in various ways and looks at turning points where stability was either under threat or destroyed, as in the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. And then looking at the Putin era as a kind of restoration and the highest point of stability that's probably ever been reached in Russian history. So I think that is one very important kind of unifying concept that's kind of projected back through the whole period that this textbook covers from the post-war, post-World War II era onwards. And of course, that links to a sort of general valorization of the power of the state and of the centralization of state authority. The upshot of the Soviet talking points was there was always an ideology that guided every narrative. The future triumph of the communism in the world, and so on. There is no such ideology for the current Russian regime, so it does not really know what it wants past events to mean, except for Russia or the Soviet Union to look good. Mm -hmm. So when the Soviet talking points help them to make the USSR look good, they use it. If not, they invent something else. Is it a total whitewash of Soviet history? Like, is there no discussion at all of of, uh, Stalinist repressions or are they, you know, they do talk about various 
interventions abroad and so on, but it sounds like they don't go into any detail about the violence or whatever, but they don't sound like they pretend that Prague Spring never happened. But is there any acknowledgement of like the deportations of Chechens and other you know nationalities and the uh, persecution of large groups of people, the terror and so on? Do they mention it? And if so, in this new textbook, and if so, how? Well, the deportations were before the war, the, uh, they were mostly before and during the war. The textbook starts at 1945, so it skips most Everybody's of that. Everybody's just where they are. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the post-war repressions were brutal, and there are two pages about them in the textbook. There are no numbers on how many people were sent to Gulag for how long. The, the post-war Gulag sentences were the harshest. During the great terror of the 30s, people were usually, if not shot, then sent to Gulag for like 10 years, plus or minus. After the war, it was more like 20 years. There is no mention of that. Mm. There are almost no names of people who were victims of the post-war oppressions. With several very noteworthy exceptions, they do mention that some prominent party leaders and military leaders and so on were arrested, like Nikolai Vesnesensky. They do mention Vesnesensky was shot and Georgi Zhukov, the marshal who took Berlin in 1945, he was sent to some distant postings after the war, and they are mentioned like literally in the same sentence. Let me give you a couple of examples from the 50s and the 60s that I just pulled out of the book. Just this to... is from the, new, from the new textbook. Yeah, 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 yeah. From, from the textbook, just to illustrate the point. The Suez crisis of the 50s was resolved, according to this textbook, because the Soviet Union had the nukes. Everything went wrong. France, Britain, and Israel ganged on the poor Egypt, and they were about to commit some awful atrocities. But thankfully, mercifully, the USSR had the nukes and was able to stop the atrocities from happening. The Berlin crisis of 1961, the building of the Berlin Wall. The West is to blame for everything. It is to blame for refusing to hand over the West Berlin to, to the DDR, to the East Germany. And it is to blame for sending spies across the border from the West Berlin to East Germany. The USSR and East Germany had to put the wall around the city to protect themselves from the spies. This is actually almost word for word, the talking points of Soviet propaganda of the 60s. The wall was officially called in East Germany the anti-fascist barrier or the anti-fascist wall, something like this. Hungary, 1956, the brutal suppression of the Hungarian uprising against the pro-Soviet government. The uprising was influenced and instigated by Western intelligence. This is a quote, largely instigated something like this by Western intelligence. And probably my favorite, I put air quotes around this, is uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968. 
so the Prague Spring. Again, the crisis, the anti-communist movement, anti-Soviet movement in the in Czechoslovakia was instigated by the Westerners, by the Western intelligence, and the Soviet and Allied troops entered Czechoslovakia. Period. End of story. What did they do? They entered and what? And had a beer? What happened then? There's nothing about it. Same as about Hungary. Within that, I think there is a certain amount of this kind of eclecticism that we often see in the Putin regime's approach to certain aspects, for example, of the Stalin era, that it's not a complete whitewashing of the Stalin era. But what it certainly does do is look for useful precedents that then can be seen as part of a kind of glorious line of succession to the current state of affairs. So you say it's not a total whitewash. Does that mean that they they talk about bad stuff that, you know, for instance, Stalin did and that they I guess like one question I have is whether or not every single moment of Russian history is presented in this textbook through a lens of this is good, this is bad, or if the tone is more, you know, this happened and there are good and bad reasons for it. Like how, how nuanced is the presentation here? Obviously the audience is 11th graders. So, you know, with that in mind, how nuanced would you say it is? I think there are two ways of thinking about the question of nuance in this book. One is that I think there is very little nuance in the in the way that the narrative is narrated. It's very I was very struck by how kind of assertive it is that this is this is what happened. This is the evaluation that should be placed on it. So to that extent, I would say that in the description of each event or each phenomenon that that they're describing, there isn't a great deal of nuance. There's more of a kind of authoritative line on this is what you should think about this and this is what this meant. In the overall picture, say, of the Stalin era, I think in, in many ways it's a lot less nuanced than preceding textbooks of the post-Soviet era. But there is still, it's striking to me that this is not a total re-Stalinization, that there is, I imagine, a somewhat kind of grudging admission that there were repressions. There's very little detail, for example, on the post-war repressions, but they are mentioned. There is not an attempt to pretend that they didn't happen. So that, I suppose, sense that these things have to be acknowledged, that there are limits to how much one can kind of bend the truth or cover things up is interesting. Clearly, there are lots of things that aren't mentioned at all in the textbook. But but where there are kind of key moments of repressive campaigns of the Stalin era, for example, they are mentioned. Another thing that struck me as not being mentioned much at all, though, was the Gulag, which of course reached its historic peak in this period. And really reading this book, you would almost not know that it existed or that it was behind a great deal of the kind of labor triumphs that are being celebrated here. In fact, when I ran a search for references to camps or the Gulag, most of the references were actually to the amnesties from the Gulag rather than acknowledging the role of the Gulag in late Stalinist society, for example. So, and just on, on this point of nuance as well, the presentation of Stalin, again, is striking to me for actually being in some ways less critical than the presentation of Khrushchev and Gorbachev. But at the same time, there isn't very much praise for him at all. It's actually very neutral. Where there is any attempt to kind of give a more positive assessment of Stalin, it's in quotations from other people rather than in this kind of assertion of this is how it was, this is Stalin's legacy, which again suggests a certain sort of caution perhaps around not wanting to look 
as though they are re-Stalinizing the narrative too much. And I'm, it's interesting to, to think about why that might be. It's an 11th grade textbook, 17 and 18 year olds who have chosen history. History is still not a compulsory subject. And as it often is, history is taught chronologically. So this will come at the end of the school year. Now, why is that important? Well, teachers and schools still have the right to decide their curriculum. They have a choice of which books they use still. And I think it was very telling that they released this PDF version for free for everybody, knowing that the schools often get leftover money anyway. In Russian, they call it ostatochny princip, this idea it's leftover, leftover money. And it often arrives late to the schools, and it probably would be no different with this. So uh, I think there's a couple of things at play here. Now, the patriotic education programs that Putin brought in in the early 2000s, there were four. Very difficult to measure the goals that they had, but mostly it was, again, essentially civic education. But they ended in 2022, and I think that was rather telling. And what's interesting is the because uh, they brought in 2015 the Crimean lessons they were brought into the curriculum and they were taught. And I spoke to teachers and they were teaching that. They have brought in the shared history of Russia and Ukraine, but what people don't seem to realize was they were doing that anyway. I watched a lesson, a history lesson of eighth grade students in Volokolamsk, and the teacher was telling them about Ivan III and the regathering of you know the Russian lands and again, the same with Ivan the Terrible. Back to the progressive thing, again, the USSR, Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great were both considered progressive czars, but it suited Stalin. That wouldn't, it still wouldn't fly today that. So yes, the political agenda has changed, but it became more conservative, these patriotic programs, as Putin's presidency went on. And I think that's significant too. You said you sat in on a lesson and you've spoken to teachers. Just anecdotally, what kind of sense do you get about how these lessons actually play out in the classroom, like in terms of the reception? Yeah, so I've interviewed teachers um, across Russia, seen lessons, not just state schools, private schools, gymnasiums, which are the kind of British equivalent of grammar schools. And what's amazing is, is that every school is different. So that particular lesson I saw, what the teacher was telling the students and what she was telling me in private were very different things. She was against the idea of having one history for everybody to learn. She said, you know, Rewriting history doesn't mean changing it just so we like it more. We have to tell the truth about the good and the bad. But that wasn't necessarily what was coming through in the lesson. Whereas another gymnasium I went to, let's just say it was in southwest Moscow, for argument's sake. This gymnasium specialized in history. That was the main subject it taught. It was its main focus. They hardly used the school textbooks. In fact, they went well out of their way to use other materials to give students that historical map and to broaden their horizons, so to speak. With patriotic education, again, with the youth programs. Now, I lived in Russia for 10 years, three different cities. I don't know anybody who ever joined one of these youth groups. I never met any students that had been in them, their parents who wanted them to join it. I'm not saying they don't happen and people aren't joining it. What I am saying is I think that this affects a very small group of people. And again, the teachers, now another couple of schools I went to, the teachers just like teachers in America and in the UK. They're like, I don't have time to teach everything. Probably when they get to the end of the academic year, unless they are mandated to kind of go over this, they probably won't. They'll probably write, the exam is coming up and here's what we need to do. 
because that's what teaching is. And again, this idea that teachers are agents of the state's message, I think most Russian history teachers would be insulted by that suggestion because they don't see themselves as that. They see themselves as trying to do good, honest work with a lot of pressure on them. The patriotic programs they do do the schools, they often take them to a museum. They say they did an activity. They might have a theatrical performance, but then they sort of sign the form yeah, we did it. They then get the money and they spend it somewhere else. They actually need to spend it. So I think we do have to be careful at, you know, is this going to have impact? Well, yes, but it will be very difficult to measure because history as ever is a very subjective topic. And the students might just be more interested to hear their teacher's opinion of the war rather than the state's version, which they probably are well aware of anyway. Clearly, this is a much more monopolistic situation now that, that's going to dawn. And there is a great deal about this textbook that is, I would say, openly propagandistic, especially towards the end when it gets very close to the to the present day. It ends with this sounds, you know, entirely sort of Soviet rhetoric of heroism, people who are fighting in the current um, full scale invasion and the greatness of Russia being kind of asserted on the final page. That's the kind of final words of the of the main text. And then the very final part of the book kind of reflects on actually this question of what history books are there to do and what history education can accomplish. And the last verb that's used of that is that history books can not only teach you and inform you and give you knowledge, but they can also make you feel history, which I thought was a really interesting verb. It's Putin's sort of approach to history has often been linked to emotions and kind of re-enchanting this, this sense of pride in, in the Soviet past and in Putin as, as a sort of restorer of Russian greatness. But I thought that verb to feel is very interesting, that it links the textbook, obviously, with, with lots of other attempts to essentially indoctrinate young people, which, again, are often modeled directly on Soviet propagandistic techniques, clubs other sorts of patriotic activities that they might engage in outside the classroom. As to what effect it might have, I think it's difficult to say, but clearly this textbook does not encourage the kind of critical, nuanced, reflective approach that certainly some people have seen was much more prevalent in earlier post-Soviet textbooks, so of the 90s and the early 2000s. There are nominally kind of exercises that you have to do at the end of each unit, but they don't to me, seem to open up any real sense of reflection. There's no encouragement to look at alternative points of view or other historiography or anything like that. You mentioned earlier that the textbook tells people that this is going to help you feel history or something like that. I imagine that certainly the authors and you know people that approve it, like Putin, they do have strong personal feelings about, especially Gorbachev and probably also Khrushchev and any like leaders, Yeltsin, people that are perceived as weak. So they have like strong emotional feelings yeah. about that. And if, and if that's what you most value, I guess, the sort of state stability, then they are the obvious figures to criticize or to feel aggrieved towards. Do you think that this textbook is capable of making 11th grade, I mean, like 17, 17-year-old Russian kids today, do you think that, that many of them will walk away and also have emotion, emotional feelings about uh, what they're reading here? Like, do you think it successfully electrifies people? That's a great question about how one actually does stoke emotion. 
And I think that, I mean, it. the book is clearly trying to do that, for example, in creating this really strong sense of pride in Soviet achievements. There's so much about the space program and about the welfare state and all these other achievements that people could kind of legitimately take pride in. There's actually a surprising amount also about literature and culture, including a, a large number of writers who I would not necessarily have expected to be listed or, you know, whose existence I wouldn't necessarily have expected to have been admitted in this book. But that all, I think, forms part of this kind of narrative of the greatness of the Soviet Union and especially of Russia as its kind of successor state. But in actual fact, I think a lot of the style of the book is incredibly unengaging, which of course was a problem that Soviet history textbook authors always faced as well, that the more that you have a line that you're trying to assert, there is just less sort of reader engagement, I think, inherently. So I think they are going for emotional effects. And clearly when they start talking about the full-scale invasion, there's a different sort of set of emotions that are being stoked there, which are very familiar from state TV and, and media. But it's not a compelling narrative of history at all. And in fact, a lot of the time, I think precisely because, especially in, in trying to handle how to write about the Stalin era, it has made itself sort of so studiedly neutral that actually it comes across as extremely bland. So it will list, for example, things that happened. So, you know, there was the Leningrad affair and then there was the doctor's plot. But there's no, there's none of the kind of either Soviet emotions attached to that or, you know, it's, it's very dry, actually, as though they knew they had to mention it but they also didn't want to create any kind of hostages to fortune by weaving any more of a narrative around it. So, I mean, I experienced emotions while, while reading it, especially the closer I got to the present day where it actually became grotesque and really quite upsetting to read. But they are clearly not the emotions that they want to produce in their readers. But I think as an educational experience or as something that seeks to kind of bring history closer to the reader, I really don't think it's style would be very effective in that regard. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.